for many people who are not trusting in Jesus Christ, the great offense of the gospel, the great offense of Christ is not so much the person of Christ or necessarily even the message of the gospel as much as it is the exclusivity of Jesus and the gospel. It is the fact that the word of God declares itself to be alone as the word of God. It is the fact that Jesus Christ says he was sent by God to save sinners. It is the reality of Jesus saying in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. Those are exclusive claims. They, they close the door on other options. Uh, they, they stand very starkly and say, this is the truth. There is no other way to heaven apart from Jesus Christ. There is no other Savior. There is no other good book that is just as valid as the Bible. These are unique things that the Bible and Jesus Christ claim for themselves. Our culture tends toward what's more and more being described as religious pluralism, the notion that that all religions have validity, all religions have something worthwhile to them all or to be appreciated. It doesn't matter if it's Christianity or Islam or Buddhism or Judaism or secular humanism, atheism, that, that in all of those there's, there's something worthwhile and worthy of consideration. Uh, pluralism would argue that within each of these religions there's these mythical elements that, that are valuable in, in sort of encouraging good behavior and in, in drawing people to do good things, at least by a worldly assessment. Uh, we even hear in our culture just sort of redefining the idea of religious freedom in light of the pluralistic culture that we're in. It used to mean religious freedom, that you, you practice your religion, so long as you're not impinging on the freedoms of others, then your religion, whatever it may be, is, is tolerated. You are free to, to practice it. And more and more, no, the desire now is not just for toleration, but for active engagement that you engage with other religions, that you exchange religious ideas, that you try to learn what's good and true about other religions and see what they have in common. Needless to say, biblical Christianity is a pariah when it comes to this sort of conversation about religious pluralism because Jesus Christ did not offer himself as one good possibility amongst a list of other options. Jesus Christ did not say you could choose me or choose this and all of these paths will ultimately get you to the same place. Jesus Christ said repeatedly, and we've seen it in the Gospel of John, if you want life, come to me. If you want to be forgiven of your sins and have eternal satisfaction, then come to me. And if you do not, if you reject me, then there is no abundant life. There is no eternal life. You stand under the wrath of God. That sort of exclusivity is found throughout the preaching of Jesus in the Gospel of John. And in fact, we'll see it again today in John chapter 7. If you can open your Bible to John chapter 7. We went through the first half of John 7 last week. And if you'll recall, Jesus went down to Jerusalem during the Feast of Booths, during the Festival of Booths, which is inaugurated in Leviticus 23 by God. And there's a twofold purpose to the Feast of Booths, sort of a contemporary one, which is to praise God at the harvest, very much akin to our thanksgiving. It is a thanks to God for the harvest that has been completed, praising him for his provision. 
But there was also a look back that went on in the Feast of Booths, remembering the Jewish ancestors who had wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, going back to the Exodus out of Egypt. They disobeyed God, didn't enter the promised land when, initially when they should have, and so wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And the Feast of Booths is to commemorate God's protecting of them as they lived in tents or booths. And so that's the, the idea of where the festival gets its name. Jesus goes to Jerusalem, first time in close to a year during the celebration of this feast, and faces an environment that is largely antagonistic and curious. We already know that the re Jewish religious leaders um, were out to get Jesus. They, they already uh, had made it clear that they were um, calling him guilty of the sin of blasphemy, claiming to be God. So there was already um, a, a scheme underway to seek to get Jesus, to arrest Jesus, and to kill Jesus. But there's also this tremendous level of curiosity amongst the, the Jewish worshipers of what will he say if, if he comes? What will he say? What will he do? What will that look like when he clashes with the Pharisees? What might happen? You know, kind of the here-to-see-a-show sort of idea when, when Jesus appears. That thread of opposition from the religious leaders clearly did not stop Jesus. We saw last week in the first half of chapter 7, he, he spends sort of this ongoing interaction with the people and the crowds convicting sin, confronting the people about their sin, confronting this, this sort of plot that's underway to capture him, and he declares them to be unrighteous lawbreakers, people who make superficial judgments based on appearances, uh, people who lack spiritual discernment. The Messiah sent from God is in their midst, and they don't see that or understand that, and he points it back in the end to say, it's because you don't know God. If you knew God, then you would know that I have been sent by God. And the fact that you don't know me shows that ultimately you really don't know the God that you claim to be here worshiping. And so Jesus Christ spoke conviction through that first half. We ended at verse 31. I'm going to pick up there and I'm going to read 31 down through the end of the chapter now. Verse 31, despite his preaching this strong conviction says, or because of that says, yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, 
Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Strong passage. There are two declarations from Jesus in this passage that I want us to focus on this morning. Two distinct moments during this Feast of Booths where he speaks. The first one is in verses 33 and 34 where he is responding to the fact that the Pharisees and chief priests have sent this guard out, these these officers out, to arrest him. And so the first statement is in response to that. The second statement is in verses 37 and 38, where Jesus stands up in the midst of the feast, or at the final day of the feast, and makes this loud public proclamation, which is an invitation on the last day of the feast. Both of these statements, as we'll see, are are pointing to the future in the sense that both of them are holding out sort of if-then ideas. If you do this, then this will occur. If this happens, then this. And so both of them sort of fill that out. And the two scenarios that Jesus describes where he speaks could not have been more opposite from one another. This really is a a, a great depiction for us when we talk about the exclusivity of the gospel, the either-or-ness of believing in Jesus Christ or rejecting him. You see it here. Because the one statement is a severe warning to those who reject Jesus Christ. It is an utterly bleak and sorrowful promise of judgment for those who reject him. And the other is an invitation to believe in Jesus and to find eternal satisfaction and peace in him. Two statements showing the exclusivity of the gospel. Jesus, in no uncertain terms, says you you reject, and this is what will happen, or you come, and this is what the result will be. There is no sort of middle ground. There is no third option at this point. This isn't vague. This is very clearly either or. First, he describes a consequence of rejection. Let me reread again verses 33 and 34 where the guards have just come out to try to capture him, and Jesus says, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me where I am. You cannot come. Here's where we are at this point. The the Jewish authorities have had enough of Jesus. We know this, and that's why we read back to verse 31, that despite the fact that Jesus is confronting and convicting of sin, there are people who are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And the chief priests and the, the chief priests and the Pharisees are now aware of this, and they are concerned, and that's why it says there at the beginning of the passage, verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things. They are aware that the crowd, some are going to Jesus, some are speculating about whether he's Messiah, some are also bringing up the fact, no doubt, in their muttering that they are aware that, that there has been this uh, sort of plot to get Jesus, and nothing seems to be happening. Here he is, out in public, speaking, And they're starting to wonder if the Pharisees are really going to do what they say. They're starting to question if the Pharisees are spineless because they won't confront Jesus now that he's actually there in their midst. For his part, Jesus knows exactly what they are doing. When verse 33 says, Jesus then said, it could also be Jesus therefore said. In other words, they are sending out this guard to get him. Jesus therefore says this. He knows what's happening. He knows that they are, are coming after him and, and, and presumably to arrest him. And, and, and Jesus at this point makes a response that's very similar to the one we read last week when we saw about uh, the, the earthly brothers of Jesus, his siblings up in Galilee, 
telling Jesus, sort of trying to prod his timing and say, you should go to Jerusalem now. You should go and, and make yourself clear now. And, and Jesus' response, if you'll recall then, was, my time has not yet come. This is just a variation on that in verse 33 when he says, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. His point is simple. The length of time that I am with you, when I leave you, where I go, how I go, that is not up to you. Know this very clearly that you're coming here to arrest me, and I'm telling you I'm going to be with you a little while longer. You're not going to succeed in what you want to do. This is Jesus just making a clear statement of authority at this point that I will be with you a little while longer, and then I will go to him who sent me, and you have no control over that. This will not work according to your timetable. Neither the Pharisees nor their hired officers would ultimately have authority over Jesus Christ only when he ultimately lays his own life down and gives himself over to them to be crucified. But it all remains very much under his control. So the fact that there is no arrest that day, that in fact the arresting guard goes back to the Pharisees and verse 46 indicates that they were taken aback by Jesus. They, they, they say to the, the Pharisees when they go back and, and they're asked why you didn't bring him, we've never heard anyone speak like this. This is what, what he has said is just beyond what we've heard before. And, and looking at this passage, there isn't a whole lot there in terms of it wasn't a long discourse. They sensed the authority of Jesus Christ just in what he said as he essentially said to them, I'm not doing what you say according to your time. I will be here. And then I will be gone, and that will all be under my control. It was not his time. At the end of the chapter, then, you have the, the discussion that goes back and forth amongst the people. It's this, is he the prophet? Is, is this guy sort of this second incarnation of, of Moses or a second prophet in the likeness of Moses? Is he the Messiah? And then all of the confusion that ensues about where he's from, which just goes to show that these people, remember Jesus talking last week about you, you think you know me. You make these superficial judgments. You think you know me. And here they are saying, well, if he was the Messiah, he would be from the line of David and from Bethlehem. Well, surprise, he is from the line of David in Bethlehem, and yet they have become convinced that he's just from Galilee. He's just some carpenter's son, and he's a nobody. And so this doesn't fit their expectations. And then you have the discussion with Nicodemus, who is one of the Pharisees who has come to Jesus before. And Nicodemus is saying, put the brakes on, guys. We have law here, and we're supposed to have an actual trial if we're going to accuse someone of blasphemy and hear his case and the Pharisees essentially demonstrate at that point that for all of their talk about abiding by the law, they are more than willing to forsake and ignore their own law. They've already convicted Jesus in their minds, he's already guilty, and they are openly mocking anyone who does not agree with them on this. As far as they are concerned, Jesus is, deserves to be put to death. Jesus, though, in verse 33, is just making it very clear that he will not bow to their timetable. And then he gives this warning that follows in verse 34. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. It is a brutal consequence of rejection that he is explaining, and, and perhaps this is the thing where the officers who are sent to arrest now have second thoughts. Jesus says, when I go away on my time, I will go away and I will go back to the one who sent me, and you will seek me, and you won't find me. You won't be able to find where I am, and you won't be able to come to where I am. Turn over for just a page or so to John 8, verse 21. Jesus speaking again later in the, the temple area in John 8, 21, under the threat of arrest. 
In fact, verse 20 says, These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So that threat is there. Look at what he says in 821. So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. The message in John 821 as is the message in John 7.34, is on one level it is a statement of authority that I will do this in my time. I will go away and I will go to the one who has sent me and, and you will not. But it is also a message of judgment because we know from the benefit of the, the full story of the Gospel of John that when Jesus is talking about his going away, he's talking about going to the cross, that he is talking about the moment when he will lay down his life and take our judgment for sin when he will suffer and be put to death. But we know that that is not the end of him, that he will go to be with his father, that he will be exalted to the right hand of God the Father, and that he will continue on. They are not understanding this. And that's why you see all of the confusion in verse 35 of, where's he going? How can he go somewhere where we can't find him? That, that's foolish. Of course we can find where he is. He's not going to go someplace and hide from us. In fact, they, they begin to speculate there and go, unless he's going outside of Judea and he's going out into the, the Greek world outside of ours to what's the dispersion, and that is Jews who have sort of been scattered throughout the Greek culture and Greek-speaking world, places like Alexandria. Maybe he, he's thinking he's going to go out there and he's going to go preach to people there which again confounds their expectations of a Messiah. Messiah sent for us. He's sent here for our people. And if, if, he's, if he's thinking, even thinking about this idea of going out into the dispersion and teaching, then it just goes all the more to confirm their wrong ideas about Jesus, that, that, that this can't possibly be the Messiah because he's not meeting their expectations. Jesus, we know, is talking about going to his Father. And his warning to them is, there may well come a time for you later when you have rejected me and rejected me, and you will at some point come to understand your foolishness, and it may well be too late. You may, as he says in John 8, 21, die in your sin. One commentator puts it this way, it is not Jesus whom they will destroy when they remove him but themselves. When the Jewish leaders arrest and put Jesus to death, we know that the crowd is not only complicit in it, but the crowd ultimately joins in that because we know when the, the Roman governor Pilate brings Jesus out and says, I find no wrongdoing in this man. I should release him to you. What does the crowd do? It says, no, crucify him, crucify him, they cry out. And so Jesus is, is speaking to people and he is foretelling here the ultimate end of people who have the gospel right in front of them. The Savior is there. Jesus Christ is appealing to them and offering them life and hope, and they are rejecting that gospel, and some of them will die in their sins and face the eternal wrath of God. And that's what he's saying to them, to this crowd at this point, that's somehow consumed in the moment and what's going to happen and is he going to be arrested. Jesus is trying to get them to think long term here that you will reject me and reject me and one day it will be too late for you. In Romans chapter 2, where it talks about the judgment of God against unbelievers, Romans 2.4 says, Do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God, in his kindness, 
calls sinners to Christ, calls sinners to repentance, to turn to Jesus Christ and to find life, to turn from our sin and embrace the Savior. And yet, as it says there in Romans 2.4, there are people who look at God's patience and, and his forbearance and they mock that. They think, oh, there's nothing to worry about here. We've got lots of time. We'll, we'll deal with God later. And, and, and that is scorning Jesus Christ. And that's why he says, are, 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 you, are you treating that with contempt, the kindness and patience of God? All of us, if you are trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior, can look back on our lives and see those times when we were apart from the gospel, when we had not yet come to faith in Jesus Christ, and we lived life for ourselves, and we broke God's law. And yet, evidenced by the fact that we are here this morning, God did not immediately strike us dead as he rightfully, justfully could. He being a holy God, us being a sinful creation, there is no requirement on God to be patient with us when we sin and when we break God's law. And yet God demonstrated forbearance. And he held out the gospel to you. And he showed you Jesus Christ. And if you're like me, even the first time you heard the gospel, you still didn't respond to it. There was still a season of time between that first hearing of the gospel to the point where you bowed your knee and and embraced Jesus Christ as Savior. And all of that is just a demonstration of God's forbearance. God being patient to lead people to repentance. That is the kindness of God. And so the warning of Jesus in John 7.34 is don't take God's patience for granted. Don't assume that just because you're hearing the gospel now that you'll hear the gospel multiple times in the future and that you'll have lots of opportunities to decide maybe somewhere down the road, maybe some other time, I'll think about Jesus. But right now, I don't need him. Life is good. And Jesus Christ is saying, be warned. Some of you will die, and you will die in your sins, and it will be too late. There is an urgency in that appeal. The warning of Jesus is deadly serious, and it is consistent throughout all of Scripture. Go back to the book of Proverbs, and Proverbs chapter 1 starts with wisdom crying out, Proverbs 1, 24, saying, I have called you, and you refuse to listen. I've stretched my hand out, and no one has heeded. You have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof. Drop down, verse 28 of Proverbs 1 says, Then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way. We must be convinced that for a merciful God to hold out the gospel does not mean that he is bound to hold it out for a certain period of time, that there must be a certain number of offers. We stand worthy of judgment from the get-go because of being sinners by nature, being those who are opposed to God by nature. So any holding out of his gospel is merciful on God's part. And he says there, even in Proverbs, they didn't heed. They, they destroyed knowledge, and so they ultimately will face the judgment of God. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 55 verse 6 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Seek the Lord while he may be found. If you are at a place where you have not trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior, you are hearing again this morning that Jesus Christ, God in flesh, came to pay a price for sin, came to be the perfect God-man who surrendered himself to the cross to be crucified, 
put to death, shed his blood, buried, and then rose again in three days to have victory over death. And that the only way for you to be made right with your creator is to put your trust fully in Jesus Christ as Savior, is to believe on him, to come to him, to, to surrender to him. Don't delay. That's what John is, is recording Jesus is saying here. Don't delay. Don't, don't presume on God that he ought to give you more time, that you should be able to, to do what you want, and someday when you're older, say, well, I'll, I'll wait till then, and then I'll embrace Jesus Christ. If he's calling you to repent, do so now. So that's the first. Again, I, I, there's the first that's just a clear statement of if you reject, this is what will happen. Now, it, turn ahead a little bit, John 7.37. Let me reread these couple of words that um, John 7.37 as Jesus speaks at the end of the feast. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus, we've seen him describe a consequence of rejection, which is ultimately you you keep putting this off and there may come a time when it's too late. Now it's the opposite. Jesus says, if you will come to me, if you will come to me as Savior, if you will come to me as one who is in need, who, who is thirsty, I will give you eternal satisfaction. I will give you life. And in fact, it will be so satisfying that, that, that it will flow from out of you into others. A little bit of background just on, on what he's describing here in terms of the Feast of Booths and how this connects. Through the first seven days of the feast, one of the rituals that the Jews practiced, it was an eight-day feast, and through the first seven days, the, the high priest would take a pitcher, a golden pitcher, and would go down to the Pool of Siloam, and we'll see... Uh, down here is the Pool of Siloam. The temple is up here. And so there would be this procession that would go down to the Pool of Siloam, draw water, and then carry it back up to the temple. And there would be trumpets preceding this, this procession. And there would be cheering. And there would be, when they got to the temple, there would be choirs that would be singing through Psalm 113, through Psalm 18. We get this from a lot of the, the extra-biblical writings from the rabbis in those days who describe all of this, that, this, this celebration that takes place. And then they would come back to the temple grounds, and the, the high priest would take that pitcher of water, and he would pour it out onto the altar in front of the people. And it would be this moment of fantastic celebration. One commentator describes it this way. There would be a great pause as the priest raised his pitcher. The crowd would begin to shout to the priest to hold it higher, and he would try to do so. It was considered to be the height of joy in an Israelite's life if he could see the water being poured out. The meaning of that act, in terms of the Feast of Booths, was going back to what we said was the twofold purpose of, of the feast itself. One was the, the celebration of that water was just part of the thanksgiving because water was so crucial to the harvest. Water was crucial to life. And so the, the water that was poured out was an act of thanksgiving to God that the harvest that had come in was because of his provision of rain. He had provided the water that was needed to, to grow the crops. And so there's that element to it. The second thing, in keeping with the look back to the Jews wandering in the wilderness, is it is a remembrance of God's provision of water in the wilderness. If you remember the encounter between God and Moses when Moses disobeys God, he's told to speak to the rock and water would come forth because the people are thirsty 
And Moses instead struck the rock and disobeyed God. But Numbers 20, verse 11 says, Water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. Water is gushing forth. And so the celebration at the Feast of Booths is both in the, in the moment to thank him for his provision for the harvest, but also to look back and thank him for how he miraculously provided water to the people when they were in the wilderness. It's not always easy for us to imagine what it's like to live in a place where water is such a rare and precious commodity, where it is something to be treated so carefully, because we have water from bottles and fountains and, and um, refrigerators. You know, we get water from just about everywhere, right? And we don't generally, most of us, have, have not experienced that moment when we are desperate for water and can't get access to any. And so in this culture, they did. In the days of Moses and the days of Jesus, they knew what it was like to need rain for survival and to thirst and to understand the importance of how water had to be diverted and pooled and dammed and kept in places so that, that they could have water. And so it becomes central to them. And that's why this, this celebration is such a joyous celebration because it is acknowledging God's provision of that all-important water. And at the peak of this celebration, and what's so interesting here is verse 37 says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, there's two ways to look at, at that. It, it's not entirely clear. The last day could presume to be the last day, the seventh day in terms of the celebration of the, the pitcher. Uh, and so at that moment, after the priest is pouring out the water, Jesus speaks, or it could well be that it is the eighth day when that ritual is not carried out and when they have now realized their thirst from the day before and Jesus now cries out on that day when they would have normally had the, the pitcher poured out. Either way, Jesus Christ cries out, and says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus crying out. If you, are, if you are really seeking satisfaction, if you are seeking more than the momentary pleasure of water that will fleet and then you will need more again, if you are looking for something that is abundant and that is truly satisfying for the, the greatest thirst in your soul, I am the one who satisfies. Jesus says, come to me. Come to me if that's what you are thirsty for. Jesus is saying, see this celebration that you're having? I fulfill that. What you're watching, what you're cheering for, I am the fulfillment of that. Herman Ritterboss puts it this way, by inviting the thirsty to himself, Jesus clearly indicated that what was sought and celebrated during the feast found its fulfillment in him. Jesus is saying, I am that one. You are longing for satisfaction. Come to me. And verse 39 then takes it. John gives us a little bit more of an explanation to this when he says, Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus is not, was not yet glorified. When we get to chapter 14, 15, 16, as Jesus is preparing his disciples, he will teach about once he has died and risen again and, and, and ascended up into heaven, then he will send his Spirit to his people. They will bring the presence of Jesus to his people. And so that is coming, but John says he is foretelling that here. In fact, we know from the writings of the Jewish rabbis that Part of the, that, that pouring out of the water, even in that, was an understanding that it was also a picture of God pouring out his spirit on his people. That they even included that idea in what was going on at the feast, that they saw this spiritual significance in it. And so as the feast is ending, and as the people are praying, they are 
thanking God for what he's provided, but they are at the same time, implicit in that is the prayer that God would continue to provide, that he would continue to supply water. Jesus Christ comes forward to say, I am the answer to what you are praying for. I am the one who has come to bring satisfaction. Jesus himself will provide lasting satisfaction. And he will come into their lives in such a way that it will flow, the power of of Jesus will flow through that life and influence others around. That's what's going on at the end of verse 38. It's it's an interesting statement there at the end of verse 38 when it says, um, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. There's a challenge there in trying to connect that with with other scripture to see exactly where Jesus is relating it to. But but the the problem we tend to stumble on in verse 38, our, our assumption is, that he must be talking about himself. Out of, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. His heart must mean Jesus. At least that's sort of our assumption, which is based on good biblical teaching, which is that God the Father and God the Son send forth the Spirit, that, that we will see that when Jesus teaches this in John 14 through 16, he will say, when I go to the Father, we will send the Spirit. I will send the Spirit to you. Not God, not man, sends forth the Holy Spirit. The problem is, though, that the grammar in verse 38 is pointing to the believer. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. It's talking grammatically about the person who has come to Jesus thirsty and who has found life in him and saying, out of him will come this, this, this flowing, out of his, out of his heart out of the the depth of his being, out of the the innermost part of his being, will flow rivers of living water. Think back to what Jesus said to the woman at the well in John 4.14 when he says, The water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. There is both that sense of Jesus providing that inner satisfaction that is matchless for the person, but it is also springing up of water. It is not just a stationary sort of nice serene pool of water, but it is a bubbling water, an expressing water, if you will, in some way. And that's what he's describing here when it talks about this living water flowing out of the heart, out of the innermost part of man, out of his inner being. That's what's happening in this description here. Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to his people. When you become a believer in Jesus Christ, the moment that you have placed your trust in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit joins you to the body of Christ, the baptism of the Spirit we describe it as, the Spirit joining you to the body of Christ, and at that moment, the Spirit indwelling you. In fact, Scripture speaks of the Spirit like a seal. The fact that the Spirit is in you now is that assurance, that hope, that I belong to Christ, that I have the indwelling testimony of the Holy Spirit as promised in the Word of God. And and the Spirit now is joined to you and indwelling in you, And is changing you and is transforming you into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Leon Morris puts it this way. When the believer comes to Christ and drinks, that believer not only satisfies his thirst, but receives such an abundant supply that veritable rivers flow from him. This stresses the ongoing nature of the spirit-filled life. Let me give you two practical illustrations of what this looks like. If you would think of the ministry of of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers, if you're trusting in Jesus Christ, two ways that the Holy Spirit ministers to you. One of those ways is in the provision of spiritual gifts. 
1 Corinthians 12 talks about us being equipped with gifts like teaching, exhorting, hospitality, helping. Gifts that you have, that, that are given, distributed amongst the body of Christ for what? The purpose of serving the body. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 says that the Spirit gives gifts, gifts for the common good. The idea is that God equips us, he gifts us in ways. It's exciting to be able to minister, and it's, it's fulfilling and satisfying when God is at work. But the greater purpose of, of the Holy Spirit in giving those gifts is for the benefit of the body. It's to serve others. It's, again, as if the Holy Spirit that God has placed in us is now using us then to minister to other people. Gifts are one of those ways. The second thing is the Holy Spirit nurtures within us fruit, changes our character, changes our, our moral behavior, turns the compass on, on how we approach life so that our actions now begin to match the new heart. They begin to be transformed. And we know that from Galatians chapter 5 when it speaks of the fruit of the Spirit, right? The, the evidence, the work of the Spirit within you is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All of that is God's Spirit now at work in us, changing us to be people that we ordinarily are not. <laughs> We're not the most loving people. We're not the kindest people. We're not naturally good toward people and faithful and have self-control. If you will believe in Jesus Christ, there is the certainty of eternal life with him, but there is also this abiding inner work of the Spirit now increasingly transforming you and I into the likeness of Jesus Christ, so now we love differently. We have a different peace when it comes to circumstances in life. We have a different approach to being kind to other people that isn't ordinary, but is the work of the Holy Spirit flowing through us like these rivers of living waters now influencing others. Think of the most satisfying experiences that you can think of. In, in life. Maybe it's the, the restaurant meal that was out of this world or, or the concert or the movie or the amusement park or the beach or whatever it was that sort of breathtaking experience. That I, I, for me, that I still remember walking up to the Grand Canyon and that moment of just first capturing a glimpse of that and, and being entirely unable to communicate what that looks like. Anyway, you can take a picture of it. You can, you can put it on Instagram of, of that experience, whatever it is. But, but you know in your heart it doesn't capture what you really want to share with people about how remarkable this is. This, this scene, this beach, this whatever it is, it's just it's beyond words. You have to experience it for yourself. How much more so as believers, if Jesus Christ has come into our lives with the, the, the promise of eternal, endless satisfaction and peace, of him transforming our being, of providing something that the world cannot, how much more ought that to be shared? God empowers us and enables us to do that. Because the reality is, if you're like me and you look at a passage like this, you also know that all of life is not a sense of this joyous, overflowing, happiness that you feel all the time. But the reality is what, what Jesus promises and what Scripture speaks of is that capacity is there, that God is doing that work within us. And he is calling us to yield 
to the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is, is more than ready and able to work through us and empower us. That's why the, the command to be filled with the Spirit is keep being, on, keep being filled with the Holy Spirit, keep on being filled. It is a continuous yielding on our part to the working of the Holy Spirit in circumstances so that God's work might come through us, might transform us, might gift us, might equip us so that we then have opportunities to whether it's speaking conviction to the world. John will talk about that. Jesus will talk about that later in John, how the, the Spirit works through us to bring conviction to unbelievers or bringing encouragement and exhortation to our brothers and sisters in Christ or coming alongside somebody who's simply in need and, and just helping. All of that is the kindness of God in his Spirit flowing through us like these living waters. Two opposites. If you reject Christ, if, if you have you've seen the gospel and you've seen Christ and you, you reject and you continue this attitude of, eh, maybe someday, then, then understand the very real possibility that one day when you discover the foolishness of your ways and you finally become convinced of it, it may be too late. And the other extreme is if you will come to Jesus as a thirsty, weary sinner with nothing in your hands, nothing to him except a thirst, accept a desire and a need as a sinner in need of forgiveness and life and hope. And if you will come to him and believe in Jesus Christ as Savior, then he promises to fill you with a satisfaction and he will spread his fame and grace through your life as it overflows through you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the beautiful hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I would pray first and foremost if there's anyone hear anyone watching or listening to this sermon even later, that if they are in that place of sort of postponing Jesus, of hearing the gospel and hearing of this Savior, and yet not ready to embrace him, not ready to trust in him, Lord, I pray that today you might open their eyes, that you might call them forth and bring them to life, that they would embrace Jesus Christ as Savior. I pray that they would have that sense of urgency, that conviction of sin, and the very real warning from the Savior that there may come a day when you look for me and you won't find me, and you will die in your sin. Lord, may you awaken that soul to embrace Jesus Christ for the glorious Savior that he is. And Father, for we who are trusting in Jesus Christ, would you just encourage us again with the truth of the inner working of your Spirit even though we are so prone as human beings to want to fall back on fleshly ways and on our own strength and our own effort, thank you for reminding us again that there is work that you do here entirely by grace that is of your spirit within us, changing us, that you then use to minister to others. We are grateful for that. We are grateful for the times when you have worked through our lives in ways that we could not have even asked or imagined. And yet somehow someone's been blessed by something that you have accomplished through us. That is such a marvelous demonstration of your living water flowing through us. Help us to be that this week. To be people who, in the midst of circumstances that are challenging, yield. Seek help. Depend on you. Cry out for the working of your spirit. Help us to to be a testimony to your greatness and glory 
because people are seeing you in us. Thank you for the eternal satisfaction of our Savior Jesus Christ, in whose name we gratefully pray. Amen.